Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond. This is episode 16. In this episode, I was lucky enough to be joined by Dickie Whitaker. Um, Dickie is a great guest, as you'll go on to hear or uh, see. He um, was one of the first people to confront me on the fact that he didn't want to just talk about his career, um, but was very conscious he couldn't talk um, for other people. So we wanted to frame this conversation around you know, topics that kind of are prescient in particularly in the kind of world of startup or the world of kind of uh, insurance. Um, and, and really, we talked a lot about collaboration. We talk a lot about startups um, and, and we share kind of learned experiences of what it's like to kind of go and go out and do those things. Um, we also talk about the dreaded innovation words. And I think Dickie had one of the strongest reactions to, to not liking it. So I almost was, was frightened to mention it on the podcast because we'd already had a pre-discussion beforehand. But this is a really good, engaging conversation, um, really sort of good fun. Um, I think we give some great examples and, and Dickie's got a, has a, a really strong history of kind of startups and innovation, um, even though he doesn't like the word, uh, um, collaboration. And I think that's important. Um, this is this is good fun, this conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. So enjoy episode 16. Dickie Whitaker. Um, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Leadership in Insurance podcast, otherwise known as The Lip. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by Dickie Whitaker of Oasis uh, Loss Modeling Framework. Um, and Oasis, uh, the, 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 there's multiple strings to your bow, sir, so I, I thought it might be better to welcome you to the show first. So welcome. Good morning. Good morning, Alex. Thanks very much for your time. No, not at all. And um, please introduce people that may not know, you know, what is Oasis and um, what it is exactly that you do. Okay, well, I'll, I'll do it quite quickly. But essentially, um, about uh, um, eight years ago, I started a company called Oasis Loss Modeling Framework. So that was there to try and solve a problem which exists in the insurance and insurance industry and outside for that matter, um, which relates to being able to understand risk using this, this paradigm called catastrophe modeling, and really, we're there to try and democratize the understanding of risk, which is a sort of shorthand for that one. But, but I also started another company after that called Oasis Hub. And uh, that's about uh, a sort of portal for innovation, for, for um, environmental data. So we've uh, got that one too. And then there, there are actually two other companies that I started uh, or co-founded. All of these things I've sort of co-founded. Uh, one called the Light Risk Network, which funds research, and one called Oasis Palm Tree, which is a consulting firm that sits around the sort of Oasis family. So that's my that's my portfolio that I've got at the moment. But see, that's why I passed it over to you because I thought <laughs> I'm not going to stumble over the multitude of things that you're involved with. Um, you probably haven't had a lot of spare time this year then, one, one would imagine. No, I, I, I mean, I started them because actually I, I sort of, I, I might describe myself as a, I, I do describe myself as a problem solver. I, I think that's what sort of, you know, that's what the world needs in many ways. You know, talking about stuff is fine, but actually you've got to roll up your sleeves and solve problems. And I sort of realized that, that, that some of these things just weren't going to go away unless somebody actually did something about it. So I sort of started the companies to solve specific problems. And I'm not entirely sure that's the best way of doing it. But anyway, it's the way the way I did do it. So here we are. Well, I mean, I, I think that's a good I think that's a good way to start a company. I mean, that actually came up the other day. Someone said to me that um, you just got to find a problem that's big enough that people will pay you to solve it. Um, and I thought, 
that's quite a neat definition of a successful business idea, I'd imagine, because I think ideas are 10 a penny, um, but sort of stepping up and actually getting active on them is, is definitely one thing. Um, so starting all these businesses, um, different businesses, um, I'm going to leap straight to a question that I'd sort of scheduled for the end, but you said you sort of co-founded them. Yeah, what for you kind of makes a successful startup team? What's the sort of magic sauce? Um, well, I, I, I think uh, um, I think there's it's it's more like uh, it's more like a sort of uh, a, a vinaigrette dressing. Actually, there are many sources that you can have with us with it, but the ingredients have some commonality, right? So, I mean, you know, I, I suppose the, the one thing I really gravitate towards is is people with sort of passion. And that doesn't mean they have to be sort of extroverts who who wear their sort of passion on their sleeve and and can convey that to to people they talk to. But you know, you know, we got a lot of programmers that work for us. They are sort of passionate about what they do, but they don't always explain it in the way that I might be explaining it. Um, so that's the dedication, that passion, and that and that sort of means that they think about the things a lot, right? So you know, and I, I think that's one of the things I I really really value a lot actually. Um, so that's one. Um, I I think, and you know, we talked to you know, we talked a little bit about sort of words that aren't the ideal world words because they they can get confusing or their meanings are confusing to people or different meanings to different people. But I think I really also like diversity, and I don't just mean sort of ethnic diversity, and I don't just mean gender diversity. I mean people who think differently mm -hmm. and that could be because of their background it could be because of a whole bunch of different things but you know and I, and I would include those other two things there too but I just I just really the people that sort of sit there and go well actually I wouldn't have done it that way and here's a better way of doing it or you know the experience I've had in this other industry means that you know I think we can bring something else to the table here because you know one of the difficulties we face in any silo of which you know insurance reinsurance is clearly one is, is this issue of, well, we've never done it this way before. If there's one thing that gets the sort of hairs on the back of my neck sort of sitting up, it's when people go, well, we've never done it that way before. You know, it's like, well, that is just the reason to try and do something. It's like, don't give me that as an excuse for yeah. why we're not going to introduce some change or, or we may need to introduce some change. Mm. That's, I mean, that's, yeah, I, I wrote a LinkedIn post the other day because it, it made me so cross because I got faced with that the other day saying, oh, we've never done it that way. And I was like, well, it doesn't mean you shouldn't. And, and you know, most, most every change that's positive comes at that point. We've never done it this way. Let's try it. Oh, that's better. Let's, let's keep doing it that way. So unless you, that, that can never be a reason not to do something. And I think that diversity point is incredibly important because it's, it's the diversity of people along things like lines of gender and, and um, you know, sexuality or race. And um, it's different experiences is what we're talking about. And that's what brings different ideas, isn't it? That's, that's why diversity across all strata is important because you, you need a bunch of people in the room that aren't, aren't going to group think. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that's come out of um, successful startup teams, in my experience, is... is having a not a safe space that sounds like a that's a bit that's a bit too public sector for you, can't, me. you can't use that word anymore that's another one you see it's been hijacked you see yeah. that that it's, it's been hijacked and used for other things I, I use it occasionally and then i realize that actually people get confused about it but yeah sorry. Uh, uh, but but a robust um but like fair place to debate an idea you know that that's that's for me massive building blocks you you need to be you need to be able to disagree um 
but then this this is the challenge of kind of startup pairs. I was talking to someone the other day, and they were talking about going into business as a, as a trio, and I said that's perfect because you need to be able to outvote somebody. <laughs> um, because yeah, that 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 ability to kind of challenge ideas, particularly because startups generally are not created equal. Someone has a strength in one area. Um, have you found that? Have you found that the successful part of it is? Um, delineation of kind of roles and responsibilities is that is that really important as well i uh, i did a, a lot more of that when i worked for a, a big reinsurance broker where obviously you have to have more probably have to have no you do have to have more structure now mm. I, I think actually there's there's less about roles and responsibilities formally you know mm. i never i never much liked titles I, I at one point refused to have business cards with a title on it that looks sort of quite flash um, because I said I want to be judged by what people think I am, not what they think I should be. Uh, and on the top of which, there'd be meetings that I'd be in where, you know, in those days, I'd be working with some smart actuary, might be quite, quite, uh, have a low title, but they were actually doing all the talking. And I'm sitting there actually not really contrib contributing. They're much more important than me in that meeting. And then, of course, you can flip it and turn it around. So, so now I think the, 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 the issue about roles, um, I think... To begin with, you want some fluidity um, because you want people to think about the design of a structure. You want people to think about and ask sort of questions. You know, you want the programmer to ask questions about are, are end users really going to do that? You know, um, and, and you know, I've had lots of instances before where programmers will go, they they actually try and do too much design sometimes, and they'll go, well, I, this is this is how you should use it. You see, and then and I'd sort of say, well actually, you know, I don't think you should be defining how people should be using it at this stage. Let's ask them how they should be using it. And then you should be, we should be designing it around that. So I think less, less so about uh, the formality of that. But of course, in small companies, theoretically large ones too, you really have to have that focus though. So you may not have very rigid roles, but you definitely have to make sure that you're focused on delivering certain things in a certain period of time, because yeah. you cannot afford to, to, to fail uh, some key delivery or, you know, it's, it's, you're always right on the edge of somewhere between, well, in fact, you're right on the edge of failure. You know, you, you, you're, ne you're never in a position of, this is just, or very rarely in a position where you're gonna be, you know, successful almost whatever you do. That's a luxury I've never, I've never been in anyway, put it mm -hmm. that way. But I, but I have always been on the edge of, of, of failure because that, and that's that visceral, um, uh, sort of focus that that it brings with it really drives a lot of stuff. It drives, you know, well, it certainly drives energy and it, drive, it can drive performance. Um, it can also actually produce stress, of course, as well. But anyway, so I think, no, very informal roles perhaps to begin with. Um, and then at least in a sort of meeting setting, right? Mm. And then a division of responsibility, uh, if you like little projects and, and little key roles. And then you end up in, yes, yes you're sort of then, pigeonhole for the purposes of that project and you go and do something and then you come back together again and you can have that fluidity again I think that's how I like to think that we we we, we try and operate yeah I think so I mean that there's still sort of there's a drifting towards your natural skill set um you know but no I can I think with us particularly when you were kind of in the I think what everyone's termed the European model of kind of startup which is have an idea bootstrap it make it happen then maybe go out and get some investment and and as opposed to the the us and it's a massive blanket statement but you know that the us seems to be have an idea go get some funding make it happen um and i think some of my reticence about that is that 
I, I'm I'm probably more in your school of thought. I've never worked harder than when <laughs> than when I can see I've got a couple of months rent left and go right. Okay, well we need to get this really really going. Um, and it sharpens the mind, and I think it's healthy. Um, and I think I think on that edge is 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 a good place to be as an entrepreneur. Not forever. I mean, it's it's uh, it's too painful, I think. But um, I think on the edge, you start to think more about things like the customer, you know, because you you're trying to deliver more efficiently and better. So, yeah, I, I would agree with you. Um, something I wanted to sort of pick your your brains on. Um, we've talked about this uh, previously, but um, what does innovation mean to you? The, the one of those poison terms but what does it mean to you yeah i think we share i i mean i mean i'm i'm i i always when i when somebody mentions that word and in your particular case we've i've got a bit of context to understand sort of where you're coming from but when when i don't understand where people are coming from i'm a bit nervous because you know there's a sort of it's become one of those things that um people have been talking about explicitly a lot in the last few years. Uh, and I think that's really weird because, you know, the, the, the foundations of, of um, su successful human existence at a really st early sort of starting, obviously starting point, but, but continuing to sort of corporate success is all about innovation. So every single company needs to build in innovation into its DNA. Otherwise, the sort of Darwinian process will kill it off uh, very, very, very quickly, um, unless they, you know, unless it's a monopoly or something else like that. In which case, it can survive longer without having innovation. But so innovation needs to be there completely, and the successful companies are the ones that embed it in every single sort of individual in the organisation, and that's what gives it life. So um, when you get people that are in charge of innovation, that's not necessarily a bad thing per se, but it would make me a bit nervous because it sometimes implies in some organizations that other people aren't required to do it. Mm. And if that's the case then, I think that that's a, that's a, a, a very difficult position to, to run a company in or, or to invest in a company in that, that's built like that. You know, my, my sort of uh, a story I like about on the innovation side was, um, was uh, 3M had a fantastic set of results when they when they sort of really uh, pioneered the, the 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 development of post-it notes, you know, which were a thing once. I'm not sure they are quite so much, but anyway, they were once a big thing, right? And they made them a ton of money. And at some investor uh, meeting, the CEO was talking about how the results have been so fantastic, and and uh, you know, it's down to their brilliance as a company. And some smart analyst said, "Yeah, but hang on a second. There's a story which I believe is true." and this is true, that they, they were trying to invent a really good glue and to do something and, they, and it failed as a good glue, but it just worked to be, create enough stickiness so you could, but it would re-stick and re-stick a bit like the post-it notes do. And they invented the post-it notes based on this failure. And the, the CEO's response was, no, no, you don't understand. You know, yes, there was a mistake that was made, or no, it was a mistake. It was part of the process of, of developing a new glue, produced something that didn't really work for what it was intended for. And because innovation is embedded throughout our firm, we didn't just go, it was a failure. We turned a failure into a fantastic uh, uh, success that made the company tons of money because mm. every individual was focusing on, on innovation. So, you know, that, that I think, you know, I quite like that story because it shows, if it's true, that actually the really good organizations are one 
that embed innovation in, in all elements. And, you know, you, you know, underwriters in insurance need to think about new policies and they need to think about how they're introducing climate change and, you know, everything else that goes with it, how AI should be operating. And it isn't some closeted department that says we are doing innovation. And, and I think I'm always concerned when you see that, um, see these little specialist units that are sort of doing stuff. And that doesn't mean, you know, that the, the, there are lots of examples of big organizations that had sort of development units. That's, I think, a different thing, you know? I think that's that's fine to do that. So you can you can operate it that way. And, you know, all sorts of people like, you know, Kodak and others used to do all these things and, you know, and, and, still, and people still do. So it's all right to have a sort of development unit, but you've still got to have innovation embedded throughout our organization if you're going to be successful, I think. Mm, yeah, I mean, on, on a similar note, I, th I think the, the thing I always like to think about is the, the, the matchbox, I forget what brand it was, but that used to have a striking plate on both sides. And then someone just pointed out, well, why don't we just have a striking plate on one side and obviously save half the cost. And, you know, that's, that's innovation, but the understanding, they didn't come from a R&D department. It didn't come from an innovation team. It just, someone just pointed that out from the shop floor and you go, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And, and I, I think that's one of the questions I, I was looking to ask you, which I think has kind of been answered, is just that how important is culture? And, and, that, and that kind of answers it. You know, culture, you have to have a culture of innovation. Um, but I don't think innovation is the right term. It's, it's more about, you know, open collaboration or something like that, because, because it's, it's enabling ideas to come from, yeah, not this siloed innovation team. Because one thing that I've seen as a trend this is absolutely not universally true, but certainly when I've looked at kind of innovation teams, the profiles of those individuals are quite similar. You know, from a, as a person who works in recruitment, the profile of those persons tend to be ex-management consultancy, those types of kind of, and, th and there's a the sort of, a, there's a genre of thinking there. So you kind of, you worry that you're getting, of course you're getting people with great skills, but you're also getting a certain way of thinking. So, um, and, and group think is, dangerous i think when it comes to innovation yeah i um um i uh i think about culture uh in the organizations you know i suppose there's two things i'd say one is you know i run small organizations and therefore creating changing culture and you know you can you can sort of change the cult you know we the whole of the company can hear what i say if i'm in the office talking you know so um <laughs> you know i can sit there and go we've really got to be better at this and there's a there's a potentially a subtle change in culture <laughs> when I do things like that because presumably people listen sort of thing and and, and of course people's responses to that will change that too you know so <laughs> so it's much harder of course in big organisations to, to to try and do that I think that um, I but you know the things that matter to me are really things like honesty and openness and uh, allowing everybody to have a say um, and you know I think that's that's I just think that's important to do you know that's how I'd like to think I behave like that generally I should say that the, the, there is an opposite approach to that which is quite difficult sometimes to reconcile with that which is around leadership and driving driving some activity you know so on the one hand I will be listening to people but sometimes you know they'll be saying well should we just do it this way and I'm absolutely certain the answer is no so I will say, no, not, you know, I've sort of listened, although they might not actually appreciate that I have listened, but we're going to do it that we're not going to do it that way. You know, so so actually, you know, this sort of I think listening and getting everybody's input isn't isn't doesn't negate the need for actually sort of leadership. And there's a very fine balance between 
listening and um and and sort of when to stop listening and to start leading you know because in the small organizations that that, that i run you absolutely have to take you know have to take a leadership position i mean i started oasis lots modern framework because i sort of thought well who, who's going to do this somebody needs to fix this problem and i've been used to up till that point you know i'd always there'd always been a ceo or somebody above me in the organizations that i was working in that sort of did this stuff and i was really supporting them so i would often say to them hey don't you think we should be doing more of this and here's why this needs to change and i think there's some information here and they'd go yes or no and the board of the company i used to work for you know would decide these things and they didn't always agree of course but but they they did something and i just woke up one morning and really looked around me and realized that nobody was going to do this and somebody actually said to me you're the best person to do this. And I was, a, I was a slightly shocked because there were always somebody better above me. But actually, if you looked at you know, skills around 20 odd years of experience in account modeling and a bunch of other things, it wasn't obvious who else was going to do this. So I had to do it. So the, so the leadership thing has to be there in these particularly small companies from day one. I think the bigger ones can actually be a little bit more collaborative because you've got sort of depth and strength in 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 an organization and you presumably have got a mature business. And, and so I think culture, you know, is really important to try and try and create that much more important in the big companies. I actually quite often speak to people, particularly usually with an analytical sort of background who are trying to get into insurance. And I sometimes see them, you know, before they go for an interview and I try and sort of give a little bit of coaching as to what they should ask and what they should do. And I, and I always say, you know, other than preparing for questions they get asked, I say, here's a good question you should ask. Ask them about the culture of the company. And in my experience, the, um, it's, it's a, one of the hardest questions for senior people in the insurance or insurance industry to, to, to actually answer. They often say, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> and, then, and then try to articulate what it is because, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, not, it's not something you're going to obviously see in some, some organizations. And in others, the culture might not be entirely one you'd want to tell people about, put it that way. So Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and culture is so, um, it's so crucial in the recruitment process. That, that's something that obviously speaks to my world. And, you know, you often get asked about culture. And this is where things like remote working and, and the situation we're in now is slightly, is slightly difficult because, you know, one of the key things is you go and visit clients and you'd, you'd meet them and you'd meet the team and you'd, you'd see the offices and you get that sort of, touch and feel for something um and, and and in this sort of remote world working that we're in now um that's kind of difficult but it does play out in how people communicate so how we're kind of going to view culture and 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 work in relationships and working environments is going to be really challenging i think going forward um but yeah that's such a great stumbling thing because you, you always ask people well, what's the culture here and um most of the time people say work hard play hard <laughs> <laughs> and then and then you go well, what, what what does that even mean and that i mean the good thing is we've now got a lot more facility to look inside a company whether it be via things like glass door or just you know how they present themselves on social media what they choose to share initiatives they choose to get involved with um but doesn't kind of get away from the water cooler gossip um particularly in insurance because most people have been, you know, if you've been in the market a long time, you know enough people in your network that you can find out. So, um, yeah, cultures, cultures. I, I do share the empathy though with them that culture on a big scale is very difficult to change. Um, 
you know, I'm a, I'm a one man band. So my culture has changed. If I fall out of bed in the wrong side in the morning, you know, <laughs> change yourself for night. Um, I think just I just want to just get uh, your your that that phrase work hard play hard, um, which I might have used myself uh, a few times going back 20, 20 30 years or so. I, I I think I probably have, um, because I I think I remember a time that seemed to me to make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, now I just think if somebody said that to me, I, I'm afraid. I think and I'm not I'm not saying you saying this is your view, right? Oh no, but no. I I think that's a pretty I think that's a pretty dumb phrase actually. Um, you know, the, the, I don't want somebody to work hard, but you know, that's not the defining cause, cause I think then people go, oh, I've been in the office until seven o'clock or eight o'clock or something, or, you know, that they, they're going to start trying to quantify it by that. You know, I want people to be smart, right? mm-hmm. work smart is so much a, a much more important thing, you know, and, uh, I've, I've found over the years of the recent years anyway, I mean, I, I've ended up in a position, you know, as we anybody that's got relatively small companies, you know, you sort of you can you can you, you can never stop in some respects mm-hmm. unless mm-hmm. you make yourself stop. And I, I definitely find myself working too much at weekends and um, and and just what would should, what would take me on a Tuesday morning, uh, you know, would take me half an hour, would take me an hour and a half. Uh, on the weekend because I just didn't have a clear enough head I was just slow I needed that break you know so I I, I have definitely you know sort of and and actually that this year with the coronavirus and these various lockdowns I mean I found to begin with that I just couldn't actually work mm. beyond you know five or six in in, in the evening because I've just just you know spending the whole day in front of a damn screen and, and trying to trying to you know get everything else done I just didn't have the energy in the evening to mm. do anything and and i decided just not to so I would just stop you know and even though as we all were mostly anyway working at home you know I would leave my home office and go in the garden or go and do something else or you know go for a walk or whatever because I just need to create that separation so definitely for me working smarter I'm I'm not quite sure what playing hard means either but that's probably I think pretty dumb as well I don't like that phrase I've decided (laughs) no I'm with you and yeah I certainly think I think it does speak to that and um you know, I've worked in those cultures and, and, and look, I mean, recruitment, headhunting, whatever you want to call it, is is effectively quite a lot of it's a sort of sales culture. And, and you know, I, I remember working with people that so clearly were just trying to outweigh everyone going home and then they would go, they would go home last. And, um, and that's if, if that's the culture that you've imbued in your business, then then that's really, really negative and damaging. And, um, you know, and, and, and you're not, you're not, you're not being efficient. I mean, that person is making less per hour than they should be because they're spending too many hours in the office. But um, um, I wanted to speak to you about um, something that is obviously sort of inherent in the businesses that you run, which is this sort of importance of partnerships and collaborations in an industry towards a culture of kind of change and innovation. Um, Obviously, you think it's important because of the, the nature of the things you've been involved with. But um, how do you make that happen? Um, and I suppose probably, yeah, I suppose, how, how did you make it happen rather than how does anyone make it happen? But how, did, how do you make that sort of partnership collaboration across an industry happen? Because um, one would imagine that's a difficult thing to do. Yeah, I, I, it, it's. I mean, I think about this a, a, a fair bit, and I've had a few questions in the past about this, and I still don't think I've got a very good answer. But I'll, 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 uh, I'll do my best. I think that actually, for me, the starting point is. Um, I, I just think instinctively, my character is. 
I'd quite like to build consensus. You know, I, I, I mean, I don't really understand the sort of mentality of, of sort of, here's my viewpoint, you know, like it or leave it sort of thing. I mean, I think that just sounds a bit odd. So, so I come from a position, I think perhaps instinctively of wanting to build consensus. Um, and I, and it, you know, and it's, and I think when I, when I then moved into th through a sort of career in, in, in business, I sort of realized that actually, you know, sales is a classic example, right? Um, you can look at sales as being, um, and this is, this is people who don't understand sales. They think it's something about making something do, you know, do something, making them buy something they didn't necessarily know they wanted, you know, which if you think that's what sales is, um, you know, you obviously uh, sort of don't really understand it, you know, it, you know, it's about understanding what your, your customer or your client wants, and then finding a way to, to explain what you have that uh, fits into what they want, you know? And I, and I think that in, even with sales, which by its nature, you still need to, of course, at some point say, well, look, you know, if you're gonna buy it, you're not gonna buy it, exactly. that you get to that stage. But even so, I think it's much more of a, a collaborative process than people that don't understand sales really, really understand. Now, if you then look at a much more, uh, where, where this stuff matters, really matters though, is, is in around the complexity that exists in all businesses and in society. So I looked around the place and I said, look, we. We want to compete on a whole bunch of different things, but actually the industry is, is terribly inefficient. And we, there are ways of solving some problems for all of us. In fact, there, there is only the only way to solve those problems for all of us is by collaboration or, 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 or other, other, otherwise it's going to be some existential threat that comes in and changes us all. And I think that's, you know, that's where really, I think the insurance from the insurance industry is right now. It's, you know, it's, it's it's massively uncompetitive in a sense because its cost base is so high, right? Mm -hmm. And and I've looked at you know in London it's you know forty points plus of the you know of a of a dollar a premium or, or whatever currency you know is is the is the cost base just to keep the lights on, and that's a that's a very high number. And I I haven't really done any research on this, but when I looked around the place to try and find well, well who else has cost ratios that of that high, the only one I could find that's more is um, the banking sector, which is a bit more than that. And I'm thinking, I don't think that's a very good position to be in, right? So, you know, and, and you know, there, there is a, not a shortage of, of people around the industry saying we need to improve, right? And improving doesn't mean shaving two points off your combined ratio, mm. you know, because that, that, there has to be a goal to be, you know, substantially cheaper in how you offer this service. And so we've really got to, you know, so therefore we've got not much time to make significant changes. And the best way I think to do that is via, is via collaboration. And so to your question about, that's more about the why than the how. Um, I think the how part is complicated, but it starts with, um, it starts with um, building trust. And that trust partly comes from, you know, experience definitely helps with trust to some degree, right? So it's easier for me to walk into somebody that I've known for 20, 30 years to say, hey, I think there's something here that's quite radically different you should be thinking about. That conversation is much easier when you've already got some residual element of trust that you've built up over a, over a, in my case, a, a fairly long career. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, the, the, that's one thing. But the trust, of course, that, that, that doesn't, you know, that, that's not the only way that it's done. So I think that, in, again, in my case, I've been really clear to try and keep... Um, to the, the sort of the core businesses that I run being not for profit. And I have often turned down commission and positions on boards that would be paid from certain organizations 
because I thought it would cloud the perspective I have when I walk into, well, I used to walk into an office anyway, um, and I can look at people and I can say, look, you know, I, I've got no skin in the game here, but here's a better way of solving this problem that we all have. And so I think, so th those are the things that I guard very carefully. I, I try and make sure that I can hopefully convey trust. I, you know, simple things like uh, I never write speeches um, because I think people that read speeches lose that visceral connection that you get when you have somebody that is sort of um, speaking from their, you know, from their heart and from their head, rather than from a bit of paper that may or may not been written by them. So, you know, I uh, I just say what I think, and I think that means that there is a there's a. It's easier to make a connection with people when you do that. And one of the difficulties, of course, if you you've already mentioned about you know the whole coronavirus stuff is, is that you know it's 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 harder to get in front of people. You know, it's harder for us to sort of to meet and, and, and form those bonds with people that you don't know or haven't seen, or you've got a complicated self. So, so I think, um, so the collaboration thing is, is around there, but there's, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's very, very hard. And I think the insurance industry is better than many industries are doing it, yeah. but not good enough. There's too many examples of mistakes being made around collaboration. And, and I think the other thing, by the way, about collaboration is, and this is one of the most exciting things in my space, is the collaboration isn't just between insurance reinsurance companies and brokers and we're you know oasis uh, doing a lot of that right now that and that's sort of great but we're also moving into developing countries and i was talking to a bunch of bankers in the philippines who might want to use cat models yesterday you know and this morning there was a, a webinar with the european union talking about how we can solve climate change and you know and actually the role that insurance plays in society you know if you ask the average individual in the street do you, do you trust insurance and bankers and everybody else? The answer is always no. They, they We're very low on their threshold of trust. And that's a shame because actually the core value of insurance is so fundamental to, to sustaining um, a resilient society. So, um, you know, the more that we can do to help the man and woman in the street understand about risk, understand about why insurance makes sense, understand what a one in a hundred year loss is, all of these things that are the sort of day-to-day -day bread and butter of the insurance industry. I think the better off the insurance industry will be and, and, uh, and there's a greater likelihood that we'll survive longer than we may do otherwise if we don't learn to be able to do that. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly with almost everything you said there, but I, but I think one thing I wanted to pick up on is that, that I think that's the appeal for me with insurance. I mean, I, I, I've, I've sort of flirted with other industries where there's a crossover, whether whether it be insurance and risk managers into kind of non, you know, sort of heavy chemical industries or whatever, or or when I've run teams and they've been tech focused and I've been dealing with tech companies, but I always kind of revert course back to the insurance industry um, because it's quite unique in its collaboration. Um, you know, I mean, Lloyd's is obviously a very ex obvious example, but the, you know, the fact that we've got a subscription marketplace and that's, that's, that, that's so alien to so many other industries. And, um, you know, speaking to sort of colleagues when I was in employed in places that did other industries, they, they couldn't understand that you could pick up the phone to someone that you don't know and, and, get a meeting and grab a coffee and people were very willing to talk. They were quite willing to engage. Um, 
although someone said to me the other day, the first coffee is always three and the second one, you need to provide the value, <laughs> which I've always thought is probably true. Um, but yeah, we are uniquely positioned because there's something about the industry that we're usually collaborating. You know, big events tend to hit multiple parties. Um, you know, there, there are things that are kind of inherent in the way that we do business that means that we have to trade and communicate with each other. So we're quite, quite well placed for collaboration, I would imagine. Yeah, no, I, I, I think we're definitely better than others, but, you know, because I spend so much of my time trying to make it work, you know, there's a, there are, you know, collaboration is, um, is much more than a willingness to sit around the table with people you may be or, you know, competitors to solve problems. Yes. You know, I think that that's obviously, you know, again, the culture, getting back to the culture, the culture has to allow you to start doing, having those conversations. But the bit that really matters and the bit that I've, in my experience, I've done badly myself, uh, I tend, tend to hopefully I'm better at it now, but is is you've got to run these collaboration exercises like you run any project, right? You can't just do this with part-time participation from willing people, you know, we're going to introduce a new thing. Wouldn't that be cool? New piece of software, new standard, whatever else it is. That will not work unless you have the rigor that, are, that is um, part of all projects, you know, like, you know, project manager, uh, and, and you can use whatever titles you want for these things, but essentially you need a project manager, you need your pro a project plan, you need people to make commitments of time or money or both. And those are the things that make things work. You know, an Oasis essentially, you know, it started, we called it a project for the first couple of years because we didn't know whether, you know, whether it would be a long-term thing. Mm -hmm. It turned into a company, but, but, you know, it's got all of those aspects. Obviously now it's a company, it's got, you know, a, a decent number of people in it, but, but it, so it's maybe a bit easier. And we're sort of looking a little bit to expand and, you know, we're doing much more on standards than we ever were before. And of course our software is open source, mm -hmm. which is a really, uh, you know, one of the most, um, Mature, perhaps mature is wrong word for it, but, but one of the most interesting areas of collaboration, right? So all of our software is, you, know, you can download it online. You can make changes to it if, you, if you're a programmer and you've got the skills. You can make suggested changes to that software. You know, and, and, and from many examples like, you know, Linux and there's many, many Apache, all sorts of ones these days. You know, I think that's a really interesting space to be in. But, e but even there again, if you look at what people like Linux do, it's not like there are thousands of programmers around the world tinkering with Linux going, oh, this little thing here, little thing there. There's a lot of directed acti activity from the, the, the Linux Foundation to make it do what it needs to do. It's mm -hmm. not a free form set of activity. And I think that's the big thing about collaboration for me. It's yes, you need people to get together. Yes, sometimes you want them to be volunteers, but often when people say to me, well, we'll just ask for volunteers. I said, please don't, please do not ask for volunteers <laughs> because sometimes the people that volunteer aren't the ones you really want, right? Yeah. So sometimes you, I get I, a lot to go to the companies and people and I say, will you help on this project? And they go, well, I'm a bit busy. And I said, well, I know you're a bit busy because you're good and you've got a, you know, a, a, a demanding job, but I need you to work on this project because of the skills that you've got. So I often think that actually, therefore, it's less about people volunteering. You know, they may think they volunteered, but, but actually you sometimes have to target the right people. And we all, you know, the people that I know in the collaboration space, that's what they do all the time, right? Yeah. So it's, it's still focused. You know, the culture is around collaboration, but it's still focused. It has to have all the disciplines that any activity in any normal company would have. It's just across industry or across industries. And mm. that's, the, that's the only difference. Mm. I'd, I'd kick myself if I didn't score through that open goal you just laid for me there, Dickie, about um, 
the best people don't volunteer and you <laughs> and you have to go and approach. But it is funny because I think, you know, I talk to obviously I'm talking to clients all the time and and and, and during the you know during this year has been you know it's been really difficult for people but people are at home so there's more freedom to do things like apply for jobs and um you know i, I was talking to a client that put a job up for 24 hours and they took that they, they said oh we don't need to use recruiters anymore because we got 280 people apply <laughs> and i said right I said firstly good luck sifting for all of those and secondly there's no there's no reason to think the right person didn't apply but a lot of the time the right person isn't available and I, I actually came from um, a not-for-profit as the first thing I did in my career actually before I got into insurance and um, uh, I was in marketing and, and uh, it, it was always a challenge and a lot of it was about partnerships and trying to sort of pull in favours and it's exactly that we'd get we'd get really lovely well-meaning people apply but I'd go yeah this is great but what do you know about SEO or you know pvc and um and, and and actual kind of technical marketing skills and um and i'd have to go out and find those people and and target them and and exactly as you say say look i know you're busy that's kind of why i want you because <laughs> because you're busy using those skills so it's a massive challenge um but um, Alex, just just before just before just in please. case i just i just said that that i think that um, there are some people that volunteer that are fantastic right of course but, but it's not like you can populate the whole, you know, the, the whole project team with volunteers. That that usually doesn't work, you know, because you know, because the other thing is there are constituents. You know, you sometimes, you know, there's there's often we'll say we need somebody from this type of company, you know, a big broker, a big reinsurer, a yeah. big insurer, a global something, you know. So you you know, you have to look at things like that. So, you know, it's a it's a balance between the both. Take some volunteers, because actually there are some volunteers that are really, really good. You know, and 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 really, really useful. But you just need to make sure you've got the right team, which isn't therefore usually going to be populated just by volunteers. Yeah, and 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 it depends what you're working on because the things that you're working on, there's going to be people that are inherently interested that have the skills. You know, because because of the nature of the work, you know, you're interested in things that are related to your field. Um, but then, yeah, there's a. I just in my head, I was picturing. When you're picking a football team, there's always some people nobody wants, right? <laughs> um, uh, but look, I, I, I wanted to, I, I said it'd be 45 minutes, so I'm conscious to kind of bring it down. But one thing that we, we had a pre-talk before this one, um, and I wanted to sort of ask you, uh, one of the sort of questions you posed was sort of a, a top three. And, I, and I, I didn't put this on the sheet, so I, I apologise, but... Um, you know, where's the, what's the top three things that you're most proud of in your work with Oasis? What what are the big, yeah, most proud of or big wins that that, that really stick in your mind as as these things that you're really pleased with? I don't, yeah, I look, I have to confess to a bias here. I don't like this idea of pride. I think that isn't that isn't, isn't that wrong, right? So I I, I, I like, I, but I'm happy with your um your big wins thing. Well, you know, um, when, when before I started uh, Oasis, um. I went to talk to a lot of people and some very large companies and some experienced people, several people said to me, look, you know, it's a nice idea, but what you're trying to do is impossible. And mm -hmm. you know, so therefore we're not going to support you because it's impossible. Mm -hmm. And I sort of, it just never occurred to me that it was impossible. And I think there's a, there's a, there's something, there's some value to um, um, blissful ignorance. You yeah. know, if you really don't think sometimes about how difficult it is, 
you know, and just don't take sort of no for an answer. You can do things. So I suppose just getting it off the ground to begin with was <laughs> frankly felt like some achievement. And after we produced our software in the first two years, um, somebody came up to me and said, I never thought you were going to do that. I said, well, why did you give me the money then? Well, it wasn't much money and it was worth it, you know. So I, I think that uh, I'm, I'm frankly never, I'm never satisfied, you know, um, we're just about to complete raising some more money, which is fantastic, you know, but I'm just moving on to the next problem. I mean, there's just, there's always something more to do. So I think that I'm, you know, I'm, I don't really, I suppose starting it to begin with felt like a, a, a good thing to do and, um, and was definitely a bit, a bit of a change from my previous career. So that was, that was good, but you know, there's just, there's just too many, too many challenges and too many hurdles ahead of me that uh, I can't really look back too much because it's much, uh, there's too much to look, to look forward to that, that I need to focus on, I think. Yeah, sensible. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's been a year for, let's say, probably, I think we'd all like to reflect less on this year than many other years that we've had. Um, and, and, and 2021 is a very welcome thing that we can see over the horizon about. But um, look, Dickie, I'll, 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 leave, it, I'll leave it there because I've really enjoyed our conversation and, and I want to thank you once again for your time. Um, thanks for spending some time with me this morning. Appreciate it. Alex, thank you. Good to talk. You're welcome. So that was episode 16 and that was the brilliant uh, Dickie Whittaker. Um, thanks Dickie for being a guest. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. Um, we covered some great stuff around collaboration and um, obviously the, the lovely open goal for anyone that works in recruitment that the best people are not always looking even when you're looking for volunteers. Um, that's notwithstanding the brilliant people that have volunteered their time particularly for uh, stuff that Dickie's involved with and um, you know, I look forward to hearing more about kind of Dickie's efforts in that field um, as we go forward. So, um, as always, this uh, episode was brought to you by wearefinpro.com. Um, we are an executive search firm that specialises in the insurance and insure tech space. Um, I've been your host, Alex Bond. If you have any feedback, good or bad, please reach out to me, uh, Alex at wearefinpro.com. Alternative, you can hit me up on LinkedIn um, as that's usually a place that you'll find me lurking. Um, I look forward to catching up with you all next week. All the best. <laughs>